Previously on Bullets and Rust. After a blow-up with my old boss, I went back to my agency and found that the new girl that I hired is more resourceful than I expected. However, she's also got a bit of a paranoid streak, one that seems suspiciously strong. Later, I was finally able to get hold of Lucy Televerger. Weary as she was, I finally managed to convince her to meet with me. I also had another rendezvous with Mercy Malone. It's stupid, I know, but something about her is impossible to resist. By the time I arrived home the next morning, I found Aristotle Rigoletti waiting for me. He's the head enforcer for the Trovolone crime family. Great. That means I'm in deep with both sides of Cleveland's turf war. Together, we paid a visit to Michael Trovolone, the boss. He told me in no uncertain terms that there were consequences for pushing too far. He'd already had his goon, Rennie, shoot out my windshield for asking around. Well, at least now I know who it was who was chasing me. But even with that threat, Michael offered me an intriguing clue. Someone had approached him recently. Someone interested in putting a hit out on Spencer Ghent. Considering that this was within a week of old Spence getting plugged in the back, it's a tip I can't afford to ignore. However, following it means that I'm putting my neck on the line even further than before. Why the hell did I agree to help Justine?
It's been a hell of a week. Saturday night saw me threatened by the chief enforcer for the Limacoli crime family. Now, it's Tuesday morning, and I've just found myself face-to-face with Michael Trovolone, heir to the most powerful crime syndicate between New York and Chicago. And yet, even as he threatened my life, Michael gave me one of the best leads I've had yet, Igor Petrovsky. However, in my experience, good luck seldom lasts for very long. If I didn't give Justine a name soon, she was liable to do something that would get us both killed. Knowing that I had precious little time to lose, I called my agency's number. Thankfully, Sam answered the phone on the second ring. Once again, I was grateful that a new assistant had fallen into my lap so quickly. Sam, it's me. I need you to pull files on a name. Are you ready? Yeah. What's the name? Igor Petrovsky. That's P-A-T-R-O-V-S-K-Y. Petrovsky. On it. I'll be in in an hour to pick up the files on Lucy Talaverger, but with so much going on, I won't be in the office for long. Got it. Oh, I've taken a couple calls for people asking if you're available. I told them we'd call them when you could take on new cases. I hope that was the right thing. That'll work for now. Also, I need you to call Blake West. His number's in my Rolodex. Tell him to watch who he's talking to. The questions he's been asking have made their way down the river. Can do. Anything else? No. Dig up what you can on Igor and keep answering the phones. Will do. Great. I'll be there soon. Take care, boss. As I hung up the phone, I noticed my battery was at only 13%. When's the last time I'd charged it? Walking into my place, I plugged it into the wall and tore off my clothes. I stumbled into the bathroom where I took a cold shower. I needed the ice running down my veins. The people I was dealing with were stone-cold killers. I hadn't felt heat like this since... (sighs) Hell, I don't think I've ever had shit like this. Not all at once. Even the time I was shot back in 2012, that hadn't been like this. By the time I climbed out of the shower, my phone was mostly charged. It was good enough, and I put on some fresh clothes and walked out the door. There was too much to do to waste time trying to catch my breath. When I walked into the agency, Sam was standing beside my laser printer, which was spitting out pages like crazy. Productive morning? There's quite a bit to sort through. You want to go through it? Not right now. I've got a lunch date with Lucy Televerger. Leave it all on my desk. Got it. It'll be ready. Wonderful. I stepped into my office and locked the door behind me. I poured myself some Applejack. A double. It was 10.30, but the liquor felt good as it burned its way down my throat. I poured another glass and carried it to my desk. It was time to study up on Lucy Talaverger. The first thing that popped out was just how many companies Lucy had worked for. If it was important and it had been located in Silicon Valley, she'd probably spent time there. When she'd come to Cleveland, there had been write-ups about it in Wired, The Verge, Gizmodo, just to name a few. The exact details of how much it cost to bring her here was unknown, but she'd been promised a significant position of influence in the synthetic corporation's business. Besides Shimiuro, there were less than half a dozen people in the company that could be said to be at her level. Abner was one of them, and his heel-digging must have been a thorn at her side. From my private files, I grabbed the portable hard drive I'd used to copy most of Lucy's computer. Plugging it in, I began to sift through her personal documents. Sometimes, it's hard to know exactly what to look for, but there are some things that I've learned along the way. The first is, if you're looking for pictures or video, check the default folders. 
It's surprising how many people are too lazy to hide even the most incriminating images. If they do, then consider lesson number two. Everyone thinks that hiding the bad stuff in a boring-sounding folder will keep them safe. The problem is, they almost always overcompensate. Few people actually keep a folder called fast food receipts or paint swatches on their desktop. At that point, you might as well just call it porn and be honest about it. Lesson three, your computer keeps track of the most recent files you've accessed. And for those, it doesn't matter where you've stored them. If they're on the computer, they're accessible. The best security you have is to keep sensitive files on a separate drive, one that travels with you. Of course, that also leaves you open to physical damage or theft, but security is all about trade-offs. Lucy might be a powerful tech executive, but in the most meaningful ways, she wasn't that different from everyone else. She had a folder called Recovery Documentation, which was full of pornography. In the photo repository, I found images of the young assistant she'd sent to snoop through the mail on Abner's desk, this time with significantly less clothes on. I was more interested by a PDF called Updated Contract. It was hidden in a folder of genuine financial documents. Opening it up, I gained new insight into Lucy's world. Her original contract had contained certain guarantees, including a promise of a promotion. The new agreement was delaying that promotion by several years, but balanced it out with a substantial increase in her compensation. In three years, assuming she met certain performance metrics, Lucy would become the president of product development. She would be the second most powerful person in the company after Shimiuro. She seemed destined to succeed him. Of course, a lot could happen in three years, and until then, she and Abner were equals. Of all the other high-level executives at Syncorp, he was the only other person who could affect financial metrics with as much impunity as she could. He was in charge of research and development. If his group didn't deliver, or if they refused to help tailor their developments into something that Lucy could market, that would affect the company's performance. And if those metrics weren't met, then Lucy's promotion was no longer guaranteed. It was a game of high-risk, high-reward. I opened another series of documents, one concerning the upcoming IPO. An initial public offering is the time right before a company becomes listed on a stock exchange, when major investment firms and banks get their first chance to invest. This is the thing that made Mark Zuckerberg a billionaire. Right now, Syncorp was giving out stock options. Anyone with options could make a proverbial killing once the IPO was over and the stocks went up for sale. As part of the IPO reorganization, Lucy had received options for up to 25 million shares at $15 a pop. One year from now, internal estimates predicted share prices between $150 and $180. Even at the low end, that was a tenfold increase in whatever you invested. If Lucy cashed it all in, she'd straight up own 5% of the company. However, from the looks of it, Lucy had given away almost 20% of those options mostly to a small group of people working directly beneath her. Two of her assistants had been given particularly large shares. Now, that was interesting. I'd have to ask her about it when we met. Most of the other documents were technical in nature, and I couldn't make out much of them. In any case, they had nothing to do with blackmail. When the time came, I pulled away from my desk and left my office. I'm going out. Sam nodded and offered a mock salute. Good luck. I arrived at Lola with five minutes to spare. When I stopped at the door, I saw Lucy being escorted to a table. I moved in behind her, grabbing my phone and turning on the audio recorder. 
I slipped it onto the table as I settled into one of the two chairs. Lucy was smaller than I'd imagined, short, with a slender, angular figure. With her jet-black hair cut into a bob, she resembled an Egyptian hieroglyph brought to life. She smiled as I took my seat. However, we both knew that she wasn't happy to see me. I'd only gotten her here because my investigation had Shimiuro's blessing, and because I'd leveraged what little information I had, convincing her that meeting me was in her best interest. That bought me one chance to take a run at her. I wasn't likely to get a second. Before we could get to business, our server appeared and asked for our orders. I'll have the mushroom orchette. My friend will have the hanger cooked medium rare, and we'll be splitting a bottle of the Druin, Chouret Liboon. The server complimented Lucy on her excellent choice and quickly disappeared. I didn't recognize the name of the wine, but the name sounded familiar. I struggled to place it as I turned my focus back to Ms. Talaverger. Steak, huh? That's awfully presumptuous. What if I'm a vegetarian? You're not, and you're an idiot if you can't enjoy a good steak. Fair enough. So, Mr. Adams, you went to a bit of trouble setting up this meeting, so shall we get to the point? You don't waste time. In my experience, there's very little value in waiting. And in my experience, it's always prudent to be careful. You don't look like you've been following your own advice. My face was a mass of cuts and bruises, collateral damage from playing two mob families against one another. <laughs> you should see the other guy. Is he in the hospital? No. Actually, he doesn't have a scratch on him. That's why I'm trying to be careful. <laughs> Lucy laughed, and I noted how charismatic she was. Was it all just an act? I know you're not working for Aratu, and he wouldn't have given you my number. Are you sure about that? Yes. Fine. Believe whatever you'd like. There are maybe ten people who have that number, Mr. Adams. I can only imagine one or two of them who could be persuaded to give it to you without having told me they've done so. Immediately. I'm resourceful, Ms. Talaverger, and well-informed. That's my job. She smiled again, but this one was laced with menace. You don't want me to guess, probably because you're trying to protect whoever it is. On the phone, you claimed you weren't blackmailing me. In fact, you said it was quite the opposite. That's a curious way of putting it. I tried not to let it show, but I was cursing myself. At the time, the offhand remark had seemed terribly clever. Now it came back to bite me in the ass. I'm coming to offer information, not use it as a weapon. Offer away, Zeke. I can call you Zeke, can't I? Before I could say anything else, our server arrived with the wine. She opened the bottle and poured a glass for each of us. As the server stepped away, Lucy raised a glass to her lips. I used the opportunity to lay the groundwork for my informal interrogation. This is a dangerous time for you. The IPO has people looking into all the nooks and crannies at Syncorp, things that would otherwise be forgotten. Right now, everything's fair game. That's the nature of the beast, Zeke. I've been at companies that went public before. So I read. You were at Facebook before they exploded. You made a name for yourself, but not as much as you could have because you were so low on the totem pole. Then you were at Lyft, Airbnb. It all looks good on paper, until you start asking yourself how all those companies are doing today. The tech industry is fickle and capricious. That's hardly news. And you're in a position to move up at Synthetic. But it's not without risk. <laughs> if this doesn't work out, well, 
You made a smooth transition to Cleveland from the Valley, but it might not be quite as easy to go the other way. I've got a sister who works in Hollywood, Mr. Adams, and they've got a saying there that comes to mind, you're only as big as your last picture. The tech world is much the same. And Syncorp looks to be huge. I've heard that there are plans to promote you to the president of product development, but only if everything goes well. And just like that, Lucy's smile disappeared. She placed her wine carefully back on the table. Where did you hear that? Like I said, it's my job to be well informed. And that's something that only a couple of people know. That was supposed to stay between me and Aratu. Information is a way of getting out, Ms. Talavajay. That's why I'm here. She leaned back in her chair, regarding me with a newfound caution. And here I thought you said you weren't interested in blackmail. I'm not interested in blackmailing you. That doesn't mean that blackmail doesn't interest me, especially when it's already happening to several of your peers. It was a slight flub. As I said before, the best lies always have a slice of truth in them. Several? It was immediately clear from her tone that she knew that someone was being blackmailed. That was exactly the kind of information I was looking for. That's right, Miss Talavergee. I've been hired to put an end to it, whether that means settling things quietly or going to the police. Well, I suppose that's entirely up to the person doing the blackmailing. Her eyes darted back and forth as she ran through what I'd said. After a few seconds, she paused, looking me directly in the eye. Wait, are you... do you think it's me? Before I could reply, the server returned with our food. I had to wait several moments before I could speak again. Do I think that you're the one taking the pictures? No. But I think that someone at Syncorp has worked hard to grease the rails for your rise to power. At the same time, there are other people who see their fortunes changing for the worse. I'm not engaged in anything nefarious, Zeke. At least nothing that's not normal in the running of a business. And I'm certainly not blackmailing anyone. Maybe that's true, but that doesn't mean you don't have access to information. Lucy grinned, and she reached down and grabbed her fork. Very interesting, but let's not let this sordid affair ruin our appetites. She took a large, notably indelicate bite of her pasta and closed her eyes as she chewed. When she opened them again, they were focused right on me. Ms. Talavergee, the question becomes what information do you have? She allowed herself a third mouthful of pasta before answering. You're fishing. Excuse me? You're fishing. I don't know where you're getting your information, Zeke, but you're only selectively informed. Getting me here was very clever, I'll give you that. But for as many facts as you've put together, you don't know anything. Not anything real. I know that you've moved half a million options to one of your assistants. Those will be worth a fortune in less than a year. It's a hell of a bonus. One wonders if you're compensating them for more than what they do in the office. I'd hoped my comment would put her off guard, but Lucy took the morsel in stride. See, that's exactly what I'm talking about. All the upper-level executives were given packages like that, and we're supposed to spread them to our employees below us, who we deem deserving of some special perks. I've given out 50000 already, and before long I'm going to give out 100000 more. It's going to be split up among another half-dozen people in my department. The men who you call assistants are important men, and they're vital to the future of this company. If it's meant to be dispersed, why didn't that happen already? And why give them to you to spread out? Because of Eratu. 
The old man has made his fortune looking into the future, but in some ways he's very old-fashioned. He puts more value in a handshake than a contract, and the majority of important decisions he makes are done face-to-face. So when he wants to disperse something, he doesn't blindly have someone at HR draw up a list of names. He turns to the people he trusts. Each of the company's 30 divisions received the shares, and Aratu assumes that we know our own departments better than he does, and he trusts us more than he trusts the board. We're supposed to dole out options to our people accordingly, reward those who've helped us grow while encouraging them to stick around in the company. Instead of jumping ship like you did after Facebook. Do you think I was given stock options at Facebook? No. So there you go. What she was saying made sense, but she also wasn't being totally on the level. Her options amounted to 5% of the company. It was mathematically impossible for all the other division heads to have been given the same. However, that didn't mean that she wasn't telling the truth about Shimiuro spreading the wealth. It was something I'd have to look more into. And what's to keep them from cashing in their chips once the price jumps? Lucy smiled as she took another bite of her pasta, washing it down with a long sip of wine. Most options these days take a long time to mature. Years. They're not meant for people looking for a quick payday. But where there's risk, there's also the promise of a great reward. And you thought your assistance deserved millions. (laughs) That's pretty generous. When Microsoft went public, even the secretaries became millionaires. Of course, a million dollars doesn't go as far as it used to. But the two you're referring to have been with me for a long time. They moved their families to follow me here, to help me make this company great. The reason they've gotten their options already was because they were the most obvious choices. But rest assured, there's more to come. If you're still in the position to give them. And what's that supposed to mean? Iratu's worried. You already know that he's hired someone to follow you. I assume that has to do with some interpersonal disagreements. With Abner Forrest? Yes. And what's that about, exactly? He thinks that because he helped the company survive its leanest days that he knows how it ought to be run in the better ones. But I've got a grander vision for our future, one that's not limited by where we've come from. He doesn't get that. Well, Aradu's worried that your squabble will hurt the IPO, that someone could use it to harm the company, or someone in it. Only three of us. Aratu, Abner, and me. You're in the crosshairs. Helping me is helping you. Lucy scraped the last of her mushroom pasta onto her fork. She savored the final bite without much concern for making me wait. I know that Abner and I share a few bad habits. I know he's been getting packages every day for the last few weeks and that he isn't taking it well. Iratu's worried about what- You're not working for Iratu. You're too comfortable saying his name. You want me to associate his name with you. It's clever, but it only works if the Mark doesn't know what you're doing. I know- Don't forget, Zeke. Marketing's my business. As for Abner, I've got more important things to worry about than that dinosaur. You can believe what you'd like, but I've got plans. I'm not in this for a short payday. I've got a future here, one that I wouldn't jeopardize for a gnat like Abner Forrest. If he's gotten himself into trouble, that's his business. Anyway, if he needs to be cut loose, I'm sure Shimuyura will take care of that. The man loves this company too much to let a man like Abner sully its reputation. 
If it were up to me, it would happen quietly, a buyout once the public offering was over. We've both got a lot invested in this. What you're suggesting is likely to push Abner to desperation, and desperate people are unpredictable. That's the opposite of what I want. In that case, then there's no harm in telling me anything you know. That way, I can keep a lit... I'm not interested in getting any more involved than I already am, Zeke. The further I keep myself from Abner's messes, the less he can pull me into whatever quicksand he's stumbled into. Hmm. I see. But, since he's eventually going to be paying for this lunch, I think we ought to take a look at the dessert menu. Lucy lifted her hand to flag our waiter. I found myself feeling frustrated. Lucy seemed like the ideal suspect. She had motive and opportunity. But then she hadn't had anything incriminating on her hard drive, had she? Not really. And she seemed uncomfortably certain that she could get rid of Abner later. As she ordered a piece of expensive cake, I realized that Lucy was just another dead end. However, despite all of that, she had given me something else to investigate. I called Abner's office the moment I reached my car. Mr. Forrest's office, how can I help you? It's me. Oh. The disappointment in Riley's voice was almost palpable. What do you want? Is Abner in? He's finishing a meeting. Fine. Maybe you can tell me what I need to know. Really? It appears that the high-level executives at Syncorp were given a pool of stock options as compensation, both for them and the people in their departments. Yeah? I need to know who Abner gave options to and who he didn't. Well, that's confidential information, Mr. Adams. I can't tell you that. Fine. I'll ask Abner. She sighed loudly. He gave out options to only one person, Edwin Durst. Important guy? He's the head designer of industrial... Why do you care what he does? Can you think of anyone else who might feel stiffed for not getting a cut? Probably half the company, but we'll all get some options at some point. But not at this price, right? And not nearly as many. What's your point, Adams? I need a list of people in Abner's division who have been at Syncorp as long as Edwin- I can tell it to you right now. Really? It's only one name, Clive Henderson. He handles hardware integration and was hired a full year before Edwin came on board. You're sure he's the only one? I'm sure. He was hired a week after I was, back when everything was still being run out of an office in Solon. Got it. Listen, when I- Wait a moment, Abner's call just ended. I'll transfer you to him now. I was abruptly cut off while she forwarded the call. A few seconds later, Abner picked up his phone. Even when I told him of the progress I'd made, I could tell he was getting impatient. I'm working on it, Abner. Of course you are. That's what I'm paying you for. Now work faster! With that, he hung up. I sighed and pulled my phone away from my face. The light on the side was blinking, telling me that I had a voicemail. It's me. Call me right away. Blake. Great. I groaned and I dialed his number. Hey, I got your message. This is a fucking mess, Zeke. You better be careful about this shit. Just asking around has brought some unwelcome heat down on me, you understand? Yeah, well, I got that beat. I walked into my apartment this morning to find Aristotle and his goon squad waiting for me. Apparently, they're not fans of your work either. Aristotle Rigoletti? 
No, the philosopher. Of course it was Rigoletti. Christ, Zeke. This is not what I signed up for when I said I'd help you out. Hey, you brought me into this, remember? I'm the one risking my life for you. And you're the one who asked me to snoop into the murder some two-bit lowlife. I bristled. Yeah, God forbid I ask you to follow your oath. Spence might have been a thug, but he was still a human being. Blake was police. He was supposed to give a shit about things like that. Fuck you, Zeke. Don't get all self-righteous on me. I know more about your shenanigans than anyone. It's... I'm not trying to pick a fight, Blake. What did you find? Blake sighed deeply before he gave me an answer. <sighs> this is sensitive info, Zeke. I need you to keep it secret. Can you do that? You know I can. This isn't out of the paper stuff. This is what I'm about to share. You can't tell anyone. You got it? And even after you use it, no one can know where you heard it. You understand? You can't fuck this up. I got it. The Limicolis keep a very tight, regular schedule. But around the night in question, Angelo's son George made an unexpected trip to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh? They've got a safe house there. And they use it as a distribution center for guns and drugs. The feds have been monitoring it for months, hoping to be able to tie it to the family with real direct evidence. Well, George gave it to them ten days ago. Really? At 3 a.m. Shit. I paused. That was the same day that Liam had went missing, and the timing lined up almost too well to believe. And he's been going back every couple days since. Takes the same car and everything. That's very interesting. Yeah, I thought you might think so. He just made a trip last night, too. Can you look into it without making noise? I'll see what I can do. I don't suppose you can give me a make and model. I can do better than that. It's a silver caddy with a license plate. C-R-I-U-S-G-R-G. -G. <laughs> Curious George? Cute. I'll see what I can find. Good, because this trial starts Friday and there's chatter that Killian might not be able to keep it together. I'm aware, Blake. You're aware? Have you seen him? He's a fucking mess, Zeke. There's no way he can run a trial like this. I know. I saw him on Sunday. Then step it up. If he's not ready, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, I'm aware. So get on it and stop having me do your snooping. We're almost out of time. Oh, go fuck yourself, Blake. Hanging up, I cursed him out some more. I didn't really care about their trial, except that it loomed as the day when Liam might suddenly become more trouble than he was worth. But the proceedings were set to begin on Friday, three days from now. That didn't leave much time. I had two possible leads, either a mother who snapped or a mafioso who had smuggled the kid out to Pittsburgh. Being that I was already downtown, there was one aspect of Kindle and Killian's story that I could check out. Kindle had let drop that Killian left their room for a little while, said he needed to go for a walk. When I asked him about it, he'd told me that he'd gone down to the hotel pool. Since Kindle was Killian's only alibi at the time that Liam went missing, that bit of news could blow this whole thing wide open. But I had a hunch. Violent prick that he might be, Killian didn't come off as the kind of man who would murder his own son. Other people wouldn't buy it, though. If this info leaked, they'd use it to go after Killian in a flash. And I worried it might give the real perpetrator just enough time to destroy any evidence tying them to the case. So... I found myself walking into the hotel with a wad of 20s in my pocket, looking to find some information.
Any independent investigator worth their salt has contacts at all the major hotels in the area. I spend a lot of hours in those lobbies, looking, waiting. At the Ritz, my contact was a friendly concierge named Sarah. She smiled when she saw me approach. Hey, Sarah. Hello, Zeke. Pleasure to see you again. I'm glad somebody thinks so. Been a rough week? Is it that obvious? It's all over your face. Yeah, well, hopefully you've been better. I've had my ups and downs, and money's tight, as usual. That was our subtle way of working out today's rate. Our usual price was $100 for every question I needed her to answer. What did you need to know? How hard would it be to get a look at the cameras? Sarah frowned. I can't get you into the room myself. I can introduce you to the man who can, but he's not going to be cheap. Understandable. How long do you guys keep your security footage? That's information I'm not supposed to know. She tilted her head to the side. There were four cameras around the reception desk, and one of them was pointed directly at us. You're a resourceful young woman, Sarah, and I'm very discreet. We keep the footage for nine days, and then it's uploaded to our data center and headquarters. In my head, I did a quick count. Is that nine days including the- We'd have everything up to 12 a.m. last Monday. For anything further back, you'd have to call HQ. Are you sure there's nothing your colleague can do about that? It's all automated. We can't do anything, not even the tech guys. The only way to get it is through the New Jersey office. And for that, you'll need a warrant. I understand. Another dead end. I cursed myself for not having come here sooner. Without seeing that footage, it would be impossible to check up on Killian's alibi. All right, Sarah, thanks for your help. I slid her the proper number of 20s and made it look like I was a customer paying the bill. She nodded and smiled, playing her part to perfection. Anytime, Zeke. Turning towards the door, I wondered if there was some way that Blake or Somerset could get me a warrant to look at that footage. Of course, an ask like that would prompt a lot of questions. Questions I didn't want to give them answers to. I was nearly to the door when a sign caught my eye. Pool, it read, in big white letters. A slender arrow pointed down the hall. I followed. It wasn't long before the smell of chlorine burned in my nostrils. Maybe there was a detail here I could use, something Killian ought to have noticed if he'd actually been here. I wouldn't know until I got a look. The moment I reached the doorway, I realized that no such questions would be necessary. Stenciled in fine white letters, I read the following. Pool area closes each day at 8.30 p.m. I ran back down the hall into the front desk. Sarah looked at me in surprise. Do you lock the pool room when it's closed? I asked. She frowned. Sarah, do you actually lock it, or is it just... We lock it every night at 8.45. We give people a grace period to finish their laps. They probably had to. If they didn't, they'd be legally liable if some kid went in the water and drowned. And if the pool room was always locked before 9 o'clock... There's no way Killian could have gotten in there between 9.30 and 10. Christ. It would have been easier to unravel the shit if the mob had done it. And just like that, my list of suspects grew longer. On the way back to my car, my phone began to ring. It was Justine. I cringed as I answered the call. 
Any news? Not yet, but I'm working on it. Zeke, I'm grateful that you're looking, but you've got to pick up the pace here. Justy, it's not going to make much of a di- Every day that passes by is another day that this fucker gets to live while Spence is in the ground. That doesn't sit right by me. You asked me to lay low, well I will. But that means you need to get results. Soon. I'm doing what I can, Justy. Do better than that. With that, she hung up. Once again, I marveled at my own ability to put myself between a rock and a hard place. If she started looking into this on her own, Justine was as good as dead. I didn't need another corpse on my conscience. I had three cases on my plate, and all three of them were tangled in knots. I hadn't mentioned it to Justine, but I did have one good lead, the name Igor Petrovsky. I could only hope that it wasn't another dead end. I hadn't mentioned it to Justine, but I did have a good lead, Igor Petrovsky, but I was smart enough to know that if she heard that name, she'd go right at him. I could only hope that this wasn't another dead end. As I was ruminating on my shitty luck, my phone rang again. I looked down, relieved to see that it was my old friend Mark. The last time he'd seen me, I'd still been shaken up after almost getting shot the night before. He'd let me crash at his place, the first time that had happened in years. It was the first phone call that I was happy to answer this whole damn week. Hey, what's up? I haven't heard from you since I dropped you off. Yeah, I've, um, I've been busy with my cases. I know. It feels weird having you over here for breakfast. I mean, I guess I just... It's not that, really. I understand if you need some space. I just want to make sure that you're okay. No, I'm fine. I really have been busy. I'm... My voice trailed off as I realized how twisted around I really was. I could try to hide it, but Mark was right. This weekend had been strange for the both of us. He'd helped pull me back in a desperate moment, and it was strange to be so vulnerable in front of someone else. Our unique history didn't make things any easier. Are, um, are you at the store? Yeah. Do you mind if I stop by? I don't want to guilt you into... That's not what it is. I want to come. I could use someone to talk to. That is, if you're okay with me bouncing some ideas off of you. I'd like that. Okay, then. I'll see you soon. Climbing in my car, I zoomed across town to Shaker Heights. I parked beside Mark's bookstore. It served as a popular little haunt for the comfortably affluent in his neighborhood, as well as for the aggressively woke hipsters who drove past Barnes & Noble to come here instead. I came by often enough that the clientele often assumed that I worked here. Mark smiled as I walked in the door. The welcoming scent of old paper washed over me, a stark contrast from the urban stink outside. The chessboard was already set up behind the counter. Mark had taken white. One of his pawns stood two spaces closer to the center of the board. I settled into a stool, grabbed a knight, and thrust it into the fray. It's good to see you, Zeke. Thanks for having me. Anytime. The next minute was silent. We quickly moved pieces in the opening stages of the game. Pawns traded hands. As awkward as Sunday had been for the both of us, this was comfortable, familiar. We each slid easily into our normal routine. It wasn't until I had captured one of his rooks that Mark spoke again. So you're still working on the same cases? Unfortunately, yes. Even the blackmail case is going nowhere. My lead suspect was a bust. <laughs> this guy's dripping with dirt, but no one seems eager to actually use it. Well, look at everyone again. They had pictures of this executive 
Ashton? Abner. They had pictures of Abner doing all his dirty shit. They must have known there was something to look for, right? It's not just that. They had to know where it was happening so that they could catch him in the act. So whoever's behind it is someone close enough to Abner to want to hurt him. Close enough to know the shit he'd gotten into. Whoever that is, Occam says it all, really. I shouldn't have to tell you that. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, Occam's razor is a method for choosing the best solution to a problem. It goes like this. If there are multiple solutions to your problem, and they solve the problem equally, then the simplest solution is usually the right one. Years ago, I'd bought him a straight-edge razor with the name Occam etched into the side. That was my idea of a joke. Now, I moved my rook forward, forcing Mark to pull back a knight to guard his king. Anyway, annoying as this is, Abner is the least of my worries. The missing kid. I keep getting the terrible feeling that it's too late. That any minute we're going to find a body. It's driving me insane. Walk me through it again. I brought Mark up to speed on everything I'd learned. I talked about the suspicious actions of both Killian and Kindle. About how there was curious intel that Blake had dug up on George Lee McCauley. Killian seemed like the obvious suspect, especially after today. But something about it still didn't sit right. Something about the whole case felt off. If he had any kind of motive, I'd be sure it was him. What's your gut tell you? That it's not him. But the logic, the evidence, it keeps shoving him back into the suspect column. And the mob lead? The Pittsburgh safe house? Yeah, somehow I've got to look into that without getting myself shot. Mark paused. I could feel him staring me down. I'm going to be careful, trust me. You've had a rough couple of weeks here, Zeke. Maybe it's time to call in the professionals. The professionals called me, remember? If the Lee McCauleys have this kid, that's just as likely to get him killed. They've got ears in every department. You're not planning on actually going out there, are you? A little. That's stupid. You're going to get yourself killed. He reached forward and casually dragged his bishop across the board. With one fell swoop, he smacked my rook off to the side. I swore at myself for not seeing it coming. I need to do something, Mark. I need answers, and all I've got are more questions. And you think you'll find those in Pittsburgh? One way or another, I'm bound to learn something. I can't do that here. You can't go in there blind, you know. The place will probably be watched. I know. That's the only reason I haven't gone already. I don't suppose there's another way to find out. Someone you can bribe? No, it's the eldest Lee McCauley kid, George. Hell, the family might not even realize what he's up to. They're pretty good at compartmentalizing information, you know. Well, I think going to the warehouse is just going to get you shot. And you've got less friends in Pittsburgh than you do in Cleveland. Well, that's depressing. Truth hurts, Ezekiel. He was right, of course. The safe house would be protected. Cameras, guards, alarms... There was no way in, not for a schmuck like me. And it wasn't like I could just ask someone to... What is it? Huh? I know that look, Ezekiel. I know it means you've got an idea. Usually a bad one. He wasn't wrong. I had a dumb idea. In fact, this was the apotheosis of dumb ideas. But it was also bold enough that it just might work. Anything you'd care to share? 
I think I know who I can talk to about the safe house. I don't think you'd like it. I'm sure of it. I looked down at the board. My position was bad. My line of pawns had started to crumble, and Mark had rebuffed both of my major offenses. With a shrug, I tipped over my own king. Listen, I, I think I gotta go, I told him. I need to strike while the iron's hot. Don't get yourself killed, okay? I'll do my best. In the midst of our game, the idea flashed in my head like a thunderclap from Zeus's hands. How could I know what was going on in the Limacoli safe house without getting myself killed? The answer? Stay as far away from the safe house as possible. I didn't need to go there myself. I just needed to talk to someone who had. With that spark of inspiration, the rest fell rapidly into place. I needed a car, one that wouldn't be tied back to me later. Thankfully, I knew just who I could call about that. It's not hard to have a good relationship with somebody who runs a junkyard. The trouble is finding one without a tie to organized crime. Not to trade in stereotypes here, but there's a reason so many cinematic mobsters own garbage trucks and scrapyards. Jimmy, he was my diamond in the rough. I'd met him years ago, back when I still wore a badge. I caught him smacking a baseball bat into the ribs of a guy at the corner of Bel Air and West 130th. I started to arrest him when a bevy of witnesses came forward. They described how the other guy had been threatening people up and down the street all afternoon. Jimmy got tired of watching. He grabbed a bat and decided to take matters into his own hands. That's the kind of guy Jimmy is. He likes righting wrongs. He likes looking out for the little guy. And he's not a stickler to playing by the rules. It didn't take long to arrange an exchange. I didn't have to give Jimmy a lot of details. By this point, we knew one another well enough that we knew what we're about. He promised to have a vehicle waiting for me shortly before midnight. That was perfect. However, before I could get to feeling too good about myself, my phone rang again. I looked down to see Abner's name scrawled across my screen. What the hell did he want now? I need you to come down here. Abner, I promise you I'm working on it, but two hours is not enough time for me to- It's not that. There's been another delivery. A picture? Yeah. So add it to the pile. It can hardly be more incriminating than what I've seen already. You need to get down here, right now. Abner hung up without another word. If I'd been pressed for time, I probably would have told him to go fuck himself. I had other matters, more pressing cases than his little blackmail. But I had several hours before I had to head over to Jimmy's scrapyard, and I was still holding out hope that I could wrap up this sordid little case before the week was out. So, I did what he asked. I drove down the Synthetic Corporation headquarters one more time. By now, the glamour had worn off. I made my way through security and up to Abner's office. Shockingly, his assistant Riley was nowhere to be found. Instead of waiting, I walked past her desk and knocked on the door to the inner office. The heavy sound of a deadbolt greeted me. Once it was removed, Abner opened the door and waved me inside. I was surprised by how frail he appeared. His eyes were wide, sunken his manner skittish. Something had shaken him. I stepped forward. Once I was inside, I saw Riley sitting on the leather sofa along the far side of the room. A very expensive painting hung overhead. Unlike Abner, she didn't look shaken. She didn't look like anything. She sat completely still, like another statue in Abner's collection. What happened? Abner pointed towards his desk. The envelope's there. 
Crossing the room, I saw it lying beside Abner's keyboard. It looked identical to those that had come before. I put on a glove and looked inside. It contained a single pair of photographs. The moment I pulled them free, I understood exactly why Abner had called me. Relative to the others, these seemed unremarkable. The first was Abner, half-naked and his wrists bound in a pair of handcuffs. The girl, Chelsea, stood over him. However, instead of a cute little rhyme, this had a single phrase written in blood-red ink. Call off your private dick or you're a dead man. I flipped to the second picture. Abner's assistant, Riley, was standing in what I assumed was her own living room. She was dressed in nothing but a blouse and black panties and was holding a glass of wine in her hand. She smiled as she spoke to someone on her cell phone. By the framing, I knew it wasn't taken by a telephoto lens. No, whoever had taken this, they'd been standing right outside her window. The second message read, I'll slice open your cunt's throat first. Placing the pictures down, I cursed beneath my breath. I just couldn't catch a break. Bullets and Rust is written, recorded, and edited by Abraham Dunn. The theme music is written and performed by Avril McAnally. The cast for this episode was... Caitlin Hawkins as Justine Gent. Seth Hawkins as Mark Hirsch. Alexandria Marshall as Riley Parker. Colin McCormick as Abner Forrest. Bridget Papagenitis as Samantha Larkin. Anne Payne as Lucy Talaverger. David Payne as Detective Blake West. Carmen Stewart as Sarah. It should go without saying, but this series is entirely fictional, as are its characters. Any claims of resemblance to actual people says more about the person making them than it does about this show. This has been a Needle Drop production. Next time on Bullets and Rust. First things first, I've got to keep Abner and Riley from going ballistic. Also, my investigation to Liam O'Malley's disappearance leads me to George Limacoli the youngest member of the family, and one who's been doing something suspicious in an unmarked warehouse out in Pittsburgh. The only question is, how do I get close to him without getting myself killed? Along the way, I'll also be following up on Michael Trevolone's lead in Igor Petrovsky. Is this the silver bullet I've been looking for, or is it another dead end? Find out next time on Bullets and Rust.